Hello and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings. In every episode, I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it is our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you, as always, for tuning into the show. How are you, E.C.? I'm great. I'm ready. How are you? <laughs> ready. We are returning to our Quick Bites this week. Quick Bites is when listeners send you, send us questions that they're curious about, and they're very good questions, but sometimes the questions that don't always require a full episode deep dive. That said, this Quick Bites is going to be a, I don't know what to call it, a follow-up on one or maybe a couple episodes that we've done recently. The, the first and the primary one is the episode that we titled Artificial Sweeteners and Food Additives, and probably closely related to the episode that we did called On the Fear of Chemicals in Our Food. Mm -hmm. So these questions mm -hmm. are going to be related to those episodes. We've already done some questions that folks had after listening to it. Exactly. Cool? Yeah. Let's so do we've it. got five questions. Anything that we need to know, talk about before we get into each one of these questions? No, I think let's roll. Okay, cool. So we've got five questions. Your your task, your aim is always roughly around five minutes each. We'll see how we do today. We'll see. First question. Kale? I don't know how to pronounce your name. C-A-Y-L-E. How do you what do you think mm -hmm. that is? I think Ka so. Kale? Yeah. Kaylee? Yeah. Kaylee, maybe? Okay. When calculating 18 cokes a day would reach the unacceptable level of aspartame, is that number still 100 times less than the actual number that was shown to be negative in rats? Or does 18 cokes a day equate to the dosage of aspartame that was found to be damaging in trials? Yeah, this is a relatively quick one, but I did want to call attention to it, and it's the former. So, and we're talking about Diet Cokes, not regular Coke. But so they find this no observed adverse effect level, the level right before something bad happens in the rats, and then they divide that dose by 100. And that's the level with a safety factor of 100 built in is to set the acceptable level for humans. And again, mm -hmm. they check that acceptable level, the 18 Diet Cokes, to make sure that's higher than what the 90% user would be consuming. So Again, it's a very conservative level. Just two kind of quick thoughts to expand on that, because gosh knows, Patrick, I can't just do a 60-second answer. <laughs> <laughs> they may actually use higher safety factors than 100, depending on the type of data they have for that additive. And so remember, you know, we get, I get 20, 30 minutes here to kind of explain some of these concepts, but there's lots of different types of toxicity studies and they're looking for different results. And so the point is, in some cases, they may use a safety factor like a thousand instead of 100. Mm. And I also wanted to point out that this protocol that I went through in that Additives podcast is not a US centric thing. It's not, again, like we just came up with it and we think it's a great idea. This is a method of figuring out acceptable daily intake for additives and human consumption that's accepted worldwide, including Europe, which is a question that we're going to get to. This is mm. just a known toxic toxicological approach to determining a safe dose. And then the second point that I just want to point out is when I gave that estimate of 18 cans as an estimate, that was for one 150 pound person. So it does change with body size. But it's also with that estimate was saying that they're not getting aspartame in other foods. So in theory, what this could also say is let's say that they were eating lots of light yogurt or something with a sweetener in it. Maybe their acceptable daily intake would end up being and I don't know how much aspartame is in light yogurt, but maybe they get five yogurts and 13 cans of Diet Coke. But the, the mm -hmm. point is the FDA is looking across usual consumptions of all the different foods that contain that additive to make sure that 
it's at very high consumptions, it's still below the level that is 100 times less than where an effect may occur in the animal. Okay, next question. Both Melanie and Kim asked about mm-hmm. natural flavors in beverages such as La Croix, sparkling water. You have to say it like that, La Croix. Yeah, totally. The terms like natural flavor or natural flavoring is regulated. And from the online code of federal regulations, quote, these flavors need to be derived from a spice, fruit or fruits, fruit juice, vegetable or vegetable juice, edible yeast, herb, bark, bud, root, leaf, or similar plant material, meat, seafood, poultry, eggs, dairy products, or fermentation products thereof, whose significant function is food in food is flavoring rather than nutritional, end quote. Got it. All I heard was bark. I know, bark. If we're taking these flavors from bark, it's okay. It's natural, right? So when a company uses those terms like natural flavors or ingredients, they are in fact supposed to be from one of those natural sources. And we're going to get into a nuance there in a second. From what I understand, natural flavors are regulated through the GRAS determination. GRAS stands for generally recognized as safe. And the difference here versus, let's say, something like aspartame is that when something is petitioned to be grass, there's an independent expert panel, in this case, like the Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association or another FEMA, they determine if this additive is safe instead of the FDA. But their process that they go through is is the same in terms of looking at toxicology studies and estimating what a safe dose would be. And again, this is in that Pressman article that we we talked about before and will we'll reappear in the show notes. And of course, this panel also reevaluates as they get new information and, and they share their information publicly and with the FDA, of course. Now, why this grass category? It's it's generally used for things that were in food before 1958, which is when that food additive amendment was passed and gave really the FDA the pre-market approval control point, right? So it, it kind of just takes some of the burden off the FDA when there is a lot of publicly available information about the safety and use of these additives. But effectively, it goes through the same process. And so, yes, natural flavors have been determined to be safe. Now, I think, though, with this question that Kim and Melanie might have seen some articles I definitely remember them towards the end of 2018, early 2019, because there was two similar lawsuits that were filed in Illinois and New York, both against LaCroix. They were claiming that, you know, they're listed as saying natural ingredients, but instead they were claiming that they use synthetic ingredients. And these synthetic ingredients might cause kidney tumors or could be used as like an insecticide. As we fast forward to 2020, the consumers have actually dropped the class action lawsuit and had to retract their claim. So Mm. pretty bad press for LaCroix and, and the case is closed. Now, what's really interesting, though, about this is I think this claim gets to something that we discussed in the fear of chemicals in our food podcast. And that's that concept of natural versus safe, because the claim, the woman said that she had the beverage tested by an independent lab and they found these synthetic ingredients. It turns out that there are natural compounds that can be made synthetically, like synthetic-derived vitamin C and food-derived vitamin C are the exact same, chemically speaking. They've got the same carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, arranged and bonded in the same way, whether or not they're synthetically made or whether or not they're derived from a food. Caffeine is the same thing. Caffeine also has nitrogen, but you get the idea. It's just this, the same arrangement of molecules. And so this is where the term natural can be deceiving for the non-chemistry person because they think in- inherently it's better and, and it's not. We, As we've mm-hmm. said before, it's, it's that dose that's really going to determine our safety. 
And so in this case, the lab where she had these results came forward and they said that they, they would have to testify that no, they did not have a way to determine whether the, the compounds that they detected in the water were derived from a natural or a synthetic source. And of course, you have to drop the case after that. And so it, it wasn't that these people had a claim that LaCroix was causing any health effects. It was more a claim of whether or not the product was labeled correctly. And of course, LaCroix says that they label it correctly, you know, quote, natural flavors in LaCroix are derived from the natural essence oils from the named fruit used in each of the flavors. There are no sugars or added artificial ingredients contained in nor added to those extracted flavors, end quote. But I, I think the fear here really was that there were synthetic ingredients in something labeled naturally. And of course, there should be transparency. And of course, a manufacturer should label it as it should. But I think it comes back to thinking that you know, natural is always better and, and not understanding how synthetic can be identically the same as something natural under the microscope and how it works and acts in the body. And so in conclusion here, natural flavors have been shown to be safe and there is no current lawsuit against LaCroix. Got it. Third that I know of anyway, got... that I know of. <laughs> Third question we've got from Sarah. What are your thoughts on additives that are deemed safe by FDA standards in the U.S., but banned in Europe and or other countries? You yeah. alluded to this a little bit. Yeah, this is a common one. People hear a lot about Europe. And I think we talked a little bit about this in the organic podcast, but I think there's like two just big picture things that I want to get into before a couple more detailed examples. You know, there's at least like we've said, 2,500 different chemicals used directly in foods as additives, according to that Pressman article. And when I Googled just mainstream literature of like differences between Europe and the US, I would find articles that would list less than 10 additives where mm -hmm. maybe they're banned in Europe and they're allowed in the US. And, and the point there is, you know, I don't, I don't think that Europe is that different than the U.S. I think that's a little misleading when less than 1% of the additives are different between the two, right? And it, that would suggest that we're more similar than different. Mm -hmm. The other thing I looked up was just sort of some disease rates in U U.S. versus Europe. And there's a graph of kind of cancer, for example. And we can't draw causal conclusions from this at all. But clear outliers are actually Australia and New Zealand. They're one and two for highest cancer rates per 100,000 people. I, I think this is partially because they have such a high rate of melanoma. Mm. But U.S. is number five, with the two countries ahead of it being Hungary and Ireland. And then spots six to ten aren't that off in terms of the actual rate. And they're all European countries. And you'll find something similar with cardiovascular disease, that some European countries are better, some worse. And so the point is that I'm trying to make here is that if the U.S. was so different in what's going on with our food supply, with environmental chemicals, or with these additives, and those chemicals were the main reason for developing these diseases that we have in, in such high numbers, I don't think we'd expect to be right in the middle of them, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I think that we'd expect that you, the U.S. would be an outlier and that these other countries would be, would be so different off. Instead, there seems to be a trend with affluence and development, if anything, right? Or maybe sun exposure in, in the case of Australia and New Zealand. But anyway, Europe is known to be more conservative than the U.S. because they're, they follow more of what's known as this precautionary principle. And it's this idea that you shouldn't introduce a new product or a process whose ultimate effects are kind of disputed or unknown to try to stay away from using that as much as possible. And it's been used for environmental reasons there. It's also been used for nutrition. For example, this is how they've banned GMOs. And the idea is, hey, we don't know the effects of something. We shouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. The main problem is it's just really vague. Like it's a really great concept, but when is the risk 
acceptable enough. And we can always go back to the driving one. Like if you accept driving, you've accepted a certain amount of risk there. So where is that number with the precautionary principle that we're saying, okay, this is something that we think is okay to put into practice. And if you truly believe the precautionary principle approach, then then I think you have to would suggest that there needs to be a ban on red meat. You know, we mm-hmm. kind of went through the whole podcast on meat and cancer risk. There is evidence you could argue that we don't 100% know that red meat is safe. And yet many people consume it. I still continue to consume it because you've evaluated what the risk really is and whether or not you want to take that risk. And so it's always this balance of risk versus benefits. And I think that we need to be really cautious, of course. I'm very cautious by nature. But Mm -hmm. I think when we've been through this process that I've explained of how they set the levels for the additives, I have a hard time saying that it's not, right? A couple other things that I, I just wanted to point out is, so yeah, I mentioned that I Googled this you know, a general media article comparing the U.S. and Europe. And and they look, I looked at some of the additives. They were saying that, you know, they're banned in Europe and in use in the U.S. And one of them is artificial food dyes. This is, gets a lot of attention because there's the question of whether or not they're linked to ADHD in children and other neurological conditions. And what I found from this Chappelle 2020 paper in the show notes is that global regulatory bodies, including the U.S. FDA, the European Food Safety Authority, which is essentially the version of the FDA, and the joint FAO WHO Expert Committee on Food Additives, among others, have assessed these seven color additives and found them to be safe for their intended use in foods for all consumers, including children, end quote. So as far as I can understand, the food dives that we have like allowed in the U.S. are approved for use in Europe. And it's true that local laws might further regulate them, and that's maybe why they're banned in certain areas. But I think this article is misleading when, if in fact, the European Food Safety Authority is saying that they're safe to say that, you know, they're not safe or that the U.S. is doing something that's so harmful. And the second example there is they also brought up this additive that's like called brominated vegetable oil, which is an additive often found in citrus sodas. And, you know, they're saying that it's banned in Europe, but it's it's still allowed in the U.S. And it goes on to talk about a rat study where there is reproductive harm with this additive. And I'm thinking to myself, Well, yeah, I mean, this is the process that we use for toxicology studies, right? And then they go on to say there's a certain amount that the FDA has found is safe and that beverages typically have half that amount. And so my opinion, it's just like, I think this is showing us that the process is working, right? There's there's like a safe limit that we set and the amount in the food is below that. But yet it comes after this whole intro about how Europe is cautious and there's the precautionary principle. And so any lay person who reads this is going to think that it's bad, right? They don't give Mm -hmm. the context of the whole process that we've been through. And so all in all, I don't think that Europe is that different than the FDA. We use the same process for setting safe doses. And many, the overwhelming majority of additives are, are, are the same between the two, not different. Fourth question we've got is from Tiff. I'm curious as to why I hear some people claim that cooking spray is unhealthy. It seems to me that it's better than using two to four times the oil you'd otherwise use. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to assume a couple concerns here as I'm actually not sure which one she's talking about. One, of course, the additives, there's, for example, like emulsifier to make sure when you spray it, right, it sprays out in an Mm -hmm. even way. But that, of course, is going to be through the same process we've kind of discussed now at nauseum. I would guess that perhaps there's concern about the propellant, right? To make the spray actually happen. Mm -hmm. That's going to be regulated as well, though, because things that come in contact with the food have to be regulated. And so the propellant could be 
butane or propane, and those are allowed by the FDA. And yes, they're also allowed by Europe for those who are curious. In fact, I did find a report from 1999, which is by a group that I think was like called the Scientific Committee. They're now the European Food Safety Authority. But the residue allowed of this spray in Europe is one milligram per kilogram in food consumed. That's the safe amount. When they actually looked at what happens and is left on the food, they found that it was 10 times less than this. And so this is often happens. This came up in our organic podcast too, that many Mm -hmm. times there's a safe level that's set that we've said, you know, it's a conservative level anyway. And what is actually appearing in the food or what is actually showing up on residue is even still less than that, even still less than this number that has a hundred fold safety factor built in. And yes, I know that data was from Europe, but I can't imagine that our spray techniques and bottles are that different, right? So I'm guessing it's probably similar. So yeah, I agree with Tiff that I, I think that, yeah, these these sprays can help people cut back on food cooking fat. I will say there's very few people making kind of homemade dinners that I think that's the true source of how to cut back in calories, just to kind of mm. always bring things back to the bigger picture that typically when people have to cut back on fat calories in their diet, it's more often than not, not because of like the olive oil, right, to, to saute the veggies at night, but instead it's going to be in these processed foods for sure. Last question we've got is from Kristen. I'd like to hear more about what happens in the body when real sugar is consumed versus sucralose and other sugar substitutes. I hear so many things about the sugar substitutes actually being worse because they confuse the body and don't satisfy you. Also, if there's anything with reduction in cognition with regular consumption of sucralose, I only have anecdotal information based on my own observations in people who consume several items a day with sucralose, but I'm wondering if there have been any studies. Yeah. I think I did kind of, maybe it was more of a gloss over, but touch on the confuse the body a little bit in that original podcast, because Mm -hmm. if the body was confused, I think we would see it show up in appetite or weight gain, right? Because theoretically, if there's this confusion going on, the body doesn't know that it's like not getting calories or it's liking the taste of sweets and theoretically that changes the behavior. But as we mentioned in that podcast, we don't find any real meaningful changes in appetite or weight gain for people that have these sweeteners in their diet. So I don't think the confusion argument actually bears out. So I wouldn't really worry about that. I, I do think if someone has a lot of sweeteners in their diet, I think they generally like the taste of sweet foods. And so when we have kind of a lot of appetite for sweet foods, it's just more reflecting of their palate and that's what they like. And that's what they probably then are going to be overeating. And so that's really the case where I think people need to focus on what are the foods they're actually consuming with calories and that people who have a lot of sweeteners probably like sweet, sweet and processed stuff. Moving on to the question though, about consuming sucralose several times a day and a reduction in cognition. No, I'm not aware of that, but I think we always have to think about if they're eating lots of sweeteners, we know what they aren't eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. We know they aren't eating protein, fruits and veggies, right? I mean, those things don't have sweeteners. And for things like brain function to go well, we do need protein, right? We do need vitamins and minerals. Those are all going to help with cognition. So maybe it's not the sucralose per se. Maybe this is more a reflection of their diet is just nutrient poor, which I think is going to be true for a lot of different things just besides kind of focus and mental clarity. And so. What happens, though, in the body was the last point to get to. That's going to depend on the sweetener. We, it's really going to depend on the chemical structure. That, that's really what 
affects everything in the body. What are the molecules in it? Well, how is it arranged and how is it bonded? So sucralose, for example, is made actually from sucrose or table sugar, but some of the oxygen in the hydrogen molecules have been replaced with chlorine. And this prevents the, the molecule from actually being broken down. And so we just eliminate it. It doesn't enter the body. Aspartame, that's the one in Diet Cokes, that's made of two naturally occurring amino acids, phenylalanine and aspartic acid, which we use as components of proteins in our body. And so the phenylalanine actually has been slightly modified by adding some carbon and hydrogens, but it gives it a sweet taste, but that's also broken down. So basically when aspartame enters, it's just broken down into non-harmful substances that we would get in our diet for the most part. And it's just used by the body in a normal way. And so this is how each additive is reviewed. Like there's other sweeteners here and I'd have to go through each one individually because what's actually going to happen is going to be dependent on their chemical structure. That's a big part of understanding how toxic it is and whether or not we can handle it correctly. And so we can't make a sweet sweeping statement like all sweeteners are just eliminated or all sweeteners are broken down. We'd have to go each one, one by one, but this is definitely an included when they look at these compounds to determine how safe they are and what the dose can be. Those are all the questions we've got this time. Good That's job. right. That was, that was an excellent job doing about five minutes each one. So congratulations really? on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. We're like 70 episodes in or something and I did it. <laughs> Where is or how is the best way to get questions, especially questions maybe as it relates to episodes we've done? What's the best way to get you questions in the hopes of getting them onto a future Quick Bites? Email is definitely the best, which you can join at optimizemenutrition.com slash email because I have the best system for inventorying them. But I do <laughs> my best to also save and archive things through any social media platform. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thank you to everybody out there listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. They do help new folks find the show. So please keep them coming. And EC and I will be back next week for another episode of The Consistency Project. <laughs>